Coming up, the Mavericks and Sixers have come back to tie their series against the Suns and Heat, respectively. Which team has a better shot for the upset? Same can be said for the Boston Bruins and even the LA Kings as the Stanley Cup playoffs moves into the deep end of round one. An 80-1 replacement pulls off a monster upset at the Kentucky Derby. The next great star of tennis. What happened to Canelo Alvarez on Saturday night? Charles Oliveira won over Justin Gaethy in the UFC but is not the lightweight champ. And the latest in Major League Baseball? I've got lots cooking in the sports kitchen. I'll serve it all up momentarily. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Hope all the moms out there enjoyed their Mother's Day yesterday as we enter another week with plenty of sports talk to dive into as this. Is the J Reels podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me, whether going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as last Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Lots to cover, lots of interesting angles that I could start this podcast with. Believe it or not, a little boxing I'm going to sprinkle in, a little UFC I'm going to sprinkle in, Kentucky Derby, which was the first run of the Triple Crown in shocking fashion. And we had a couple of shocking upsets over the weekend that were not in the NBA playoffs, or even the Stanley Cup playoffs for that matter. Of course, what's going on in baseball, as it's pretty quiet. Yes, some teams are doing well. Some teams are falling to the bottom of the standings. And even though we're one month into a baseball season, as we took a little bit of a lay of the land on Thursday, we'll do a bit of the same here today. But I guess the best way to start us off would be to attack the NBA playoffs, and in particular, what had taken place yesterday and pretty much over the weekend When we look at both the Sixers and Mavericks getting back into their series, they were both down 0-2 heading into the weekend and now have come out feeling pretty good about themselves as they move to the latter part of this series. Both road teams or teams that were down 0-2 will now go play in Phoenix, in Miami, if you're Dallas or Philadelphia. And it's interesting to kind of 
take the 30,000-foot view on this, especially if you're a Suns and Heat fan, two number one seeds, off and running in the second round, and now there are question marks abound about whether or not your team is going to get out of this series alive and hopefully play in a conference final. And I'll start off first with the Suns because they were the best team all year, as we know, led by Chris Paul. And even with Devin Booker being out early in this postseason with the hamstring and him coming back and playing particularly well, especially yesterday with the 35-point effort in a losing cause. But the Suns here have to look themselves in the mirror. And this is going to be one where if they do not somehow, some way, get out of the series with a victory, a lot is going to be pointed at the point guard. And I don't want to put this all on him. As we know, it is a team game, team sport, etc. Understood. But I talked about this in the last series against New Orleans. I talked about this even last year. Check the receipts when the Suns were in the finals against the Bucks, And I get it that he is a point guard. He's not your 2022 prototypical point guard that's going to shoot first, pass later, or attack the basket, or try to take over a game when necessary. And we've seen Chris Paul do that. But when we look at these last two games to where game three, 12.7 turnovers in a losing effort, and then yesterday, five points, fouled out with eight and a half minutes to go, more or less, less than nine minutes to go, and granted he may have had other things on his mind, which I'll get to in a little bit, and we know that every time we've seen Chris Paul have these type of games, all you got to do is look at game four in the previous series against New Orleans, where he was just god-awful, and then... As I mentioned on the podcast, I figured that he was going to look at that game four that he had in New Orleans and then rebound and try to give an all-out performance in which he did by going perfect from the field, perfect from the free throw line to where they closed out the Pelicans in six games. Well, it looks like we're going to need to have that type of repeat performance from the future Hall of Famer because what we've seen here over the last couple of games, it makes you pull your hair out of your head if you're a Suns fan. And we understand he's an all-time great. I'm not trying to knock him totally as far as what he's done throughout his career because people are going to look at that as like, oh boy, here goes Jay Reels on the soapbox dissing CP3. No, that's not the case. But when you watch the last two games, knowing that if they just took one of those games to go back to Phoenix, chances are they would have wrapped up the series in five. Now you have question marks because you got to wonder, as I've said before, and I even threw this on my TikTok feed, will the real Chris Paul stand up? And when we take a look at those last two games, that question could easily be posed. Now, we understand that he doesn't have much after Booker. I get Jay Crowder could throw in some points from time to time, but he's not a guy, especially on the road, that you really see Jay Crowder or a guy like that go off to where he's going to be that third guy. We know DeAndre Ayton is the third guy on his team, but he floats in and out of these games. So watch him have a monster game five as the series will go back to Dallas. Probably in all likelihood up 3-2. But you just have to wonder whether or not this team is just locked in at all times. And I get it. Teams that have bad games. And I get it that you have to give the Mavericks credit because people will say, come on, Jay Reels, give it up for what the Mavs done. And we understand that Jalen Brunson finally woke up out of his slumber with 28 points in game three. And then yesterday, the hero besides Luka, who didn't have a great game, was Dorian Finney-Smith with all those three-pointers. And what they did, 20 for 44 from three, as the Mavericks were able to even the series. But 
you still have to look at Phoenix as a team that won 64 games and how they performed in the first series, granted against a live dog in New Orleans, but Dallas, from what you saw in those first two games, you thought that you would need Herculean performances from Luka in order for the Mavs to get back in the series. And that's the scary part because Luka, although, like I said, did not have a good game yesterday, and yes, pretty much the same for Luka's standards on Friday, but we still haven't had that 40-point explosion to where Luka's going to take the game over a la LeBron James, Game 5 in Detroit in the 2007 Conference Finals. We still haven't seen that Luka yet in this series. And that's where the Suns are in danger of maybe losing this series because if Luka happens to go off on one of those type of games and let's say pulls a Game 5 like that out of his ass and you're going back to Dallas down 3-2, then what? And that's my point here with the Suns team as we move forward. And now with the Heat, you have to wonder whether or not after that 2-0 lead, and granted there was a missing piece and a huge one at that in Joel Embiid, but as easy and as simple as it was in the first two games, these last two games, you saw the Heat struggle. And this is with a 40-point performance yesterday by Jimmy Butler. James Harden, talk about waking up from a slumber. Harden showed you a little bit of the old Harden yesterday. He only shot 8 for 18, but he did have 31 points. He was attacking the basket. He was that guy that a lot of people thought in Philadelphia was going to see based on the trade. Ben Simmons, we all know that's narrative. And to have Harden have a James Harden-like type game, I'm sure it boosts not only the fan base, but obviously what they see in the locker room to know that maybe James Harden and Joel Embiid could have this rest of the series to where they could take over and beat a Heat team that is more about the whole than the sum of its parts. Because yes, they do have a very good scorer in Jimmy Butler. We know about Bam Adebayo and even Tyler Hero coming off the bench. Kyle Lowry, who's back in the lineup, but still not as 100% as you could tell by his performance there yesterday. And the Heat right now are staring at a best of three, which two of the games are at home. But now with Embiid back in the mix, and Embiid was a big presence there on Friday night to where he played 36 minutes, had 18 and 11, and just having him on the floor was a tremendous boost. And then yesterday, he followed that up with 24 and 11, I believe, to go along with what Harden did. And now we have a series there where at once, last week when we were discussing these series, it looked like it was a foregone conclusion that both of these teams were going to move on to a conference final. And now, you got to wonder whether the Heat or the Suns are going to make it through this series and get to the next round. And to answer that question, who has a better shot of advancing here? Would it be Philadelphia or Dallas? Mind you, with Embiid back in the lineup, you would think Philly has a better chance because what you saw in those first two games, the Sixers were invisible. Same for Harden. And they didn't have an answer for what the Miami Heat threw at them. But now you throw Embiid in the mix and you look at this team knowing that they have the possible MVP on the floor of the league this year to go along with Harden's resurgence, albeit one game, and do I trust him in a game five or six? I can't say that he's found the fountain of youth a la Houston back in 2017-2018 just yet, but who knows? Maybe that they got a lot of momentum here and all they need to know is that if they win a game down in Miami to take it back to Philadelphia they could close out the Heat in six so quite possibly 
maybe for one more game, he could get up and try to take him home to a decisive six game. But I would think Philly has a better shot than Dallas, although we haven't seen the Luka performance that a lot of people have been waiting. And that's the one thing that would scare me if I'm a Suns fan. Because Luka, as we all know and we've seen over these last few years, he can take a game over. And who knows if that performance is still on the horizon. Now, does Dallas have a shot to win this series? Well, obviously they've come back. And as we all know, it's not a series until a team wins on the road. And same situation for the Sixers. If they could pull out a victory in Game 5, similar to Dallas doing the same, they could take it back to their home court and wrap up the series and be the unlikely conference finalists in the East and West, respectively. Now, we all know we could see a 3-2 series lead by the road team and then spit the bit at home. We've seen Philly do that last year, especially in that Atlanta series. Phoenix, we saw that last year in Game 5, albeit it was a final against Milwaukee, but remember, they were up 2-0 in that series. So we will have to wait and see how this all shakes down here over the course of the next 48 hours or so. And it's fascinating stuff. It's actually put some life into this NBA playoff because what we've seen here to this point has had some moments, but nothing that you could really wrap your arms around to say, ah, Now I can really get into the series. Oh, wow. Now we have some intriguing storylines. Now we could see what Chris Paul's going to do here in the game five in which he needs to bounce back in the worst way. Same for a Miami Heat team that has pretty much been, I'm not going to say a machine, but like I said, with all their components and key pieces, whether it's defensively, whether it's having the offensive guys off the bench, in particular Hero, and being that type of team that's going to try to wear you down Now the Heat are staring at a best of three, knowing that they're going to have to come all systems go tomorrow night, more than likely with a Joel Embiid who's going to be fired up and ready to take this series back to Philadelphia with a 3-2 series lead. So I would think Philly is the better chance to come out of this series more so than Dallas. Do I think the series could go seven games? Absolutely. But we kind of thought that in the first round when we saw New Orleans beat The Suns in a game four, and we thought maybe that could be a seven-game series. That was not. Dallas lost a tough game four in Utah, and we probably thought that that was going to be a seven-game series. That was not. Same could be said for even Philadelphia. When Toronto down 0-3, made it 3-2, going back to Toronto, and I believe what? They were down by a point at the half. It was 62-61, or maybe the Sixers were ahead by one. I can't remember off the top of my head, but... That series didn't turn out to be a seven-game affair. So I would think that both Phoenix and Miami will survive this. But I think I'd be more scared if you're Miami than you are Phoenix. I think Phoenix will find a way. They can't go out like this. Even with everything that I've mentioned, I'm sure Chris Paul is going to be stewing. And I know that yesterday with him fouling out, and a couple of those fouls were ticky-tack. I get it that Chris Paul is a, the old man in the park where he's going to try to draw contact based on his know-how, his experience, and that had backfired, especially on that fifth foul because I know he tried to draw that contract and maybe flail a little bit, but then for whatever the reason, the call went against him, which wasn't a great call, but that's the type of play you're going to get from Chris Paul at this stage of his career. 
He's going to try to outsmart you. You know, this is 37-year-old Chris Paul, not 27-year-old CP3. But I would think that the Suns, as well as the Heat, will prevail. But I do wonder whether or not this will go seven games. And you know what? Just for kicks, I will say Suns-Mavs go seven games. I wouldn't be surprised the Heat win in six. I wouldn't. And I'm hoping for two game sevens. I mean, how could you not? But I think one of the two series will go seven games, and I think it'll be Dallas and Phoenix because of the inconsistency of Phoenix here throughout the playoffs. Even though they're able to turn it on when they can, but I think with Luka looming and the Sixers having him beat back, that's to me is the difference on whether or not these series will go seven games. And as far as the other two series, Golden State and Memphis is now taking a big turn John Morant, not going to play tonight, said by his coach Taylor Jenkins over the weekend. What you saw there on Saturday night as the Warriors just ran the Grizzlies out of the gym, which sets us up for a pivotal game four for the Memphis Grizzlies. And before the Grizzly fan could get on their high horse to say, well, we got them right where we want them, considering that we were 20-2 and in the regular season without John Morant in the lineup, and what they'll be able to do on the road here in a big test for this young team that maybe they could pull off a big upset to take that series back home even at two. I don't know if that's going to be possible against this team that has the pedigree, that has the medal, that has what it takes to not just win a series, but to take advantage of a team that isn't on their level when it comes to that experience, when it comes to that level of play where they know that they're going to have to play disciplined, they're going to have to play with high intensity, and Memphis, we've seen this throughout the postseason, where thankfully they went up against a sloppy and undisciplined T-Wolves team to where they were able to get out of that series in six games, as I said back then, and I'll say one last time, the Timberwolves should have won that series if they didn't shoot themselves in the foot over and over. Golden State's not going to do that. And you would think tonight, they're going to go right at them without their best player. And I get it. We could look at that play there late where Jordan Poole was trying to reach for the ball in the backcourt there with John Morant. And then next thing you know, he tugs on his right knee. That right knee had been ailing him throughout. And for whatever the reason, he's not going to play tonight because of that. And it's interesting because during the post game where we did not see John Morant participate in, but he did tweet that Jordan Poole broke the code. And when you watch that replay, yes, he did go for the ball at first, but why was he tugging at his knee after that? That's a dirty play. That's not to say Jordan Poole's a dirty player. I'm talking about the play itself was just dirty. Who does that? Go at somebody's knee in that fashion to where just the simplest tug is going to affect the course of this series to where we may not see Morant at all if this goes longer than five games. And I discussed this last week where Kerr talked about how Dylan Brooks with that hit on Gary Payton, how he broke the code, and I like Kerr a lot, but we can't take that seriously knowing that he has a guy on his team like Draymond Green, and then when you look at the exploits there Saturday night of Jordan Poole, it makes you think, Coach Kerr, I get it that you're trying to 
not necessarily getting ahead of the other team and their coach, etc., or maybe even getting to the ear of the refs for that matter, that it was despicable or to play some sort of Jedi mind trick. But when we see that take place, Steve Kerr has got to pipe down. And again, I'm not trying to say Jordan Poole, that was premeditated, that it was just, he's that type of player. But you got to wonder, why was he reaching at his knee like that to the point where I'm sure he wasn't looking to take him out of the series in that regard. But still, why are you reaching for his knee? It's inexcusable. Same if a guy had a bad shoulder. What are you going to do? You're going to like bump him in the shoulder or hack him on the shoulder and maybe be discreet about it. But at the same time, hey, let me see what this is going to do to try to throw him off. Well, you pretty much tip the balance of the series towards Golden State winning chances on five games. And if that's what he was trying to do, he was successful. That's why, to me, it's a dirty play. But let's see what Memphis Magic is going to be stirred in the hat there tonight because they're going to need a monster effort out of Jaron Jackson, who's been very inconsistent throughout this postseason. And we know the cast of characters, the Desmond Baines of the world. And let's see what they're going to do to rally the troops to get this series back to Memphis tied because the way it's looking right now, if you're not going to have your best player in the lineup, despite their record during the regular season, but this is the playoffs. This is a whole different ball of wax. It's going to speak volumes for this Memphis team tonight based on what they do. Are they going to be in this game in the fourth quarter or do they get their doors blown off a la game three and now they have their tails between their legs flying back to Memphis there for probably setting themselves up for an execution there in game five. And then lastly... Celtics-Bucks, tough game there for the Celtics on Saturday afternoon, and it was tooth and nail. I know that the Bucks took a considerable lead, actually a 13-point lead into the fourth quarter. Giannis was unstoppable, 42 points, 13 rebounds, but it all came down to that final minute to where at 199, with less than a minute to go, Giannis makes a layup to make it 101-100, then Jalen Brown comes back the other way, tries to get to the basket, gets stuffed. Ensuing possession by the Bucks. Drew Holiday makes a basket. It's 103-100. And then it sets the stage for those final crazy seconds to where Marcus Smart, who came back in the lineup after that quad injury that he suffered in Game 1, tries to attempt a three-pointer while being fouled. And they were hoping to get the three shots. I could see he was trying to shoot the ball there once he was fouled. But it wasn't as if he had the ball up. And I understand that he looked at that as a bad call that was missed by the refs. And we could debate that until the cows come home. But unless he had his arms up in the air in the act of shooting, they're not going to call that. Yes, did it look like he was about to raise his arms to shoot the basketball? Absolutely, but not to the point where his arms were extended and then was fouled to the point where they would have given him three free throws. As it was, he made the first free throw, and then you knew he was going to clang it off the rim, which you have to do in that case because if you don't, It's a turnover. So he was able to hit the rim. Celtics do get the rebound. They had a couple of putbacks. Opportunities that looked like it was going to fall through the hoop. It didn't. And then once Al Horford was able to tap it in, time expired. Celtics lose. Tough loss. Horford played great. Jalen Brown was phenomenal in the game as well. And Jason Tatum was an absolute no-show. And that's what you pretty much have. Because even on the other side with the Bucs, it was all Giannis. Drew Holiday with a contribution. And 
Milwaukee just showed that they were able to have enough and some luck involved because when you have a couple of putbacks there in the final four seconds, and that four seconds took four minutes, it seemed, because the Celtics had a million opportunities to tap that ball in, but they were unable to do so before the clock ran out. And now we have a pivotal game four tonight where Jason Tatum has to rebound. Reminds me similar to game one where Jalen Brown was invisible in that game and then he had a phenomenal game two. We're going to need to see that from Tatum tonight in order for the Celtics to get back to Boston tied at two. That's all there is to it. Whenever you hold a team to 103 points, you would think, especially in this day's NBA, it's almost as if, wow, maybe the Celtics were able to slow down Giannis. Oh, you look at the score sheet, 42 points. All right, I guess nobody else really got off. You know, Holiday got his points. You had some contributions elsewhere from other guys, but to me, those are the two main guys that really chipped in. I know Connaughton hit a big three, but still, the Celtics fell short, and when you have your best player in the team shoot as horrifically as he did in the game, and at one point, I think it was 3 for 17, did not play well, did not shoot well, and now he's going to need to bounce back in a resounding way in order for the Celtics to avoid a 3-1 deficit going back home. Can the Celtics pull this off tonight? I think they can. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do. If it's 3-1 going back to Boston, I could see them winning a game five and then game six. Who knows? You would think Milwaukee's going to go down for the, try to strike with the hammer and close out the Celtics to not get on a plane to go back to Boston for a game seven. But that's a little bit down the road. You got to worry about tonight first. And of course, we'll recap it later on in the week. I think Tatum will play well. It's just a matter if you're going to get the same performance that you got out of Al Horford as you did there Saturday afternoon. You're going to need that third guy to chip in and really make a big effort in order for this series to draw even here in this Eastern Conference semifinal. So that's what you have with the NBA. Now let me turn my attention to the ice because there's a lot of series to cover and some storylines that are abound here. I will start off with the Boston Carolina series because with the way the Bruins played in those first two games, and granted game one, it was 2-1 to one before Carolina took off there late in the third, but then they won game two, 5-2 to two, I believe, and then you thought, alright, you figure the Bruins are going to win at least one game in Boston, and they did so in game three as Brad Marchand, David Pasternak, and also Taylor Hall, three key guys on their offense, woke up as they each scored a goal in game three, and then yesterday, with Marchand being back in the mix there, scoring that go-ahead goal in the third after Carolina thought that there was goalie interference there late in the second period with Jake DeBrusque on his goal. Rod Brindamore, the coach of the Carolina Hurricanes, was furious, thought that the goal shouldn't have been allowed. And as we all know, sometimes in the NHL, when you get that late goal in a period, it adds momentum. There's a little bit of a buildup going into the final period, and you saw that there with the goal by Marchand, and they were able to then skate away with a 5-2 victory, even in the series as it goes back to Carolina. And this is without Charlie McAvoy, who's in COVID protocol, another key member of their team. So now you wonder whether or not the, the Bruins have some gas in the tank. Because similar to these NBA series as we talked about, they just need to steal a game five on the road before coming back home and hopefully icing the series and putting Carolina out the pasture here in this first round. And Carolina, as we all know, they had a huge year. A year that didn't go under the radar for 
the NHL fan who's paying attention, but a team that if you woke up the morning of the playoffs and you saw the seedings and you look at the point totals, you say, wow, Carolina had that type of year? Yes, they did. I think that they'll bounce back. I did pick the Hurricanes to win in six. I understand that a lot of momentum is now on the Bruins side, but they still have to win a game in Carolina, which they've yet to do. And as I've said time after time, it's not a series until a road team wins. Could this be the time where the Bruins, especially with what they're capable of doing with the Patrice Bergeron's of the world, and they do have a pedigree as well, can they overcome and go into Carolina and steal a victory out of the building down in Raleigh to then have an opportunity to close out the series come Wednesday night? Or excuse me, come Thursday night? I think it's going to be a tall order. I think Boston's going to have to play from ahead in this game. I think once Carolina gets ahead, obviously the momentum is going to be on their side. So I'd like to see the Bruins win. I'm not a Bruin fan. Everybody knows I'm an Islander fan, but I'd like to see the Bruins win. But I think it's going to be a tall order for them to do so. But now you can see the series going to a seventh game. And as we all know, it's a toss-up when you get to a seventh game. So we'll see what happens in that series. The other series that are now facing two teams in particular tonight, whether it's the Rangers and the Florida Panthers, and in particular the Panthers, and I'll start with them. The President's Trophy team this year, most points in the league, now have to look themselves in a mirror to rally the troops to avoid going down 3-1 back to Florida tonight after that embarrassment on Saturday to where Jonathan Huberto finally got his first goal of the series, but then the Caps took over and just blitzed the Panthers out of the building. Six goals, they win 6-1. They had Ilya Samsonov in goal for Vitek Vanacek, and Samsonov was fighting tears just knowing that he had this opportunity to where he was put in net, and Vanacek, who knows what his status is going to be for the rest of the series, but Samsonov... And the Caps have a lot of momentum themselves. The Capitals, who a lot of people thought they were going to be the first team knocked out, considering that they made it as a wild card, but as an eighth seed. And who knows, maybe there's a little karma. When I think back 12 years ago, when they were the one seed, and I believe they were the President's Trophy winner that year, and they were up three games to one against the Montreal Canadiens, and then lost in that series. So who knows, maybe there's a little bit of a role reversal a dozen years later. Still remains to be seen, But if you're a Panther fan, you have to be disgusted with the way this team's performed so far. And now they have to face a huge Game 4 in Washington tonight. And the same for the Rangers. Because we could talk about, oh, they're young. Maybe they're a year early as far as their arrival goes. But one thing I've noticed here over the last couple of games, and granted they won a Game 2 in their building to where they were up 3-2 heading into the third and they were able to pull away with their victory against the third-string goalie in Pittsburgh and a Louis Domingue. But even though they were valiant in their comeback, they were down 4-1, and Capococco opened the goal scoring for the Rangers there, and I'll get to him in a minute. But with the Rangers coming back after giving up four first-period goals to where they pulled Igor Shosturkin, and you got to wonder about his psyche here a little bit as he's getting his first real taste of pressure playoff hockey. But the Rangers did bounce back. The Rangers did get themselves back in the game, but then... The Penguins took over to where they got the go-ahead goal there in the third, and then they tacked on two empty netters at the end to a 7-4 victory. But here's what I want to say about this young Ranger team. 
Now, we know the team is going to be focused around Chris Kreider, Terry Panarin. Those are the two guys, as we know, are going to lead this Ranger team. But I want to see some growth here by their two young players, one Capococco and the other being Alexis Lafreniere. These are two guys that were, A, the number two pick overall and the number one overall pick in past drafts. Guys that I understand are still young. What are they, 21 years old? And they still have a lot of room to grow and a lot of hockey ahead of them. But these are high draft picks. These are guys that should be impact players on your team. And Lafreniere was supposed to be this generational guy that was going to be the next guy after Connor McDavid. And so far, what we've seen here has been a lack of that. So, yes, is it early to say, come on, J-Reels, let them get into their prime years, 23, 24, and let's evaluate them then. Okay, that's fine, 100%. And again, Panarin, Kreider, they're going to be the ones that are the straw that's going to stir this range of drink. But can I see something? All right, Capo got the goal there to start game three, but can I see a little bit more on the offensive end from those guys? who are high draft picks that are supposed to be impact players on this team? Just a little bit. I'm not trying to say they got to score, you know, two goals a game. But I'm sure if you're a Ranger fan, you'd like to see a little bit more from these guys because it's not going to be all on the shoulders of Panarin or Chris Kreider throughout the course of a series. Players are going to key in on those guys. This isn't the regular season anymore. And when I looked at their regular season stats, they weren't that impressive either. So Rangers right now, they have to get this series back to the Garden, and who knows, Shesterkin is also the other thing you have to worry about if you're a Ranger fan. What's going on in his head as he prepares for a Game 4 tonight? As far as the rest of these series, they are all pretty much balanced. Other than Nashville, Colorado, you got to wonder about the goalie if he's going to come back. Darcy Kemper, who got a stick to the face there in Game 3. And even if he doesn't come back, they have a cushion. It looks like they're going to sweep Nashville Nathan McKinnon's on a roll, although I do need to see this in later rounds. Speaking of number one or high draft picks, it's good for McKinnon to get all these goals now against Nashville, but let me see this in a conference final similar to what we had to witness last year against Vegas and where he was invisible after a 2-0 series lead. But with the Avalanche, they're going to be a shoe in to go on to the next round. Okay, fine. Tampa. Got the equalizer last night against Toronto, and that series is going to be fascinating. Best of three where Toronto has the home ice. And Toronto got a big game there on Friday night to where they took a 2-1 series lead, which I thought was huge for their psyche. So even though yesterday they got their doors blown off themselves, they fell into a 3-0 hole early, especially one minute into the game on a goal by Corey Perry. But after the first, it was 3-0, and they cruised on to victory from there. But now let's see Toronto... And they're going to need this game in the worst way. There's going to be a lot of pressure on this Toronto team to win game five in their building. Because if they lose that game, and they can, if they lose that game to have to go to Tampa in a game six, the weight of Toronto and pretty much all of Canada is going to be on their shoulders in that game six. So Toronto, can they win that game? Of course. And I actually think they will win a game five. Because they didn't lose a double overtime game or a game that they should have won that it let slip. No. Which could be a little bit more damaging to the psyche of this team. But because they weren't in this game from the start and knowing that they could flush it down the toilet and get back home to now take a series lead to go back to Tampa, I think that they'll be fine. Is it an automatic? Absolutely not because you are going up against the two-time 
defending cup champs. But it's going to be fascinating to see how that unfolds here over the course of the next few days. St. Louis and Minnesota. I said this was going to be a seven-game series. Minnesota got the 2-1 series lead as they dominated in game three. And then the Blues got even. Two goals by Jordan Cairo and David Perrin as they evened up that series. And now it's pretty much any one series as it goes back to Minneapolis. Calgary. They have a bit of pressure on them as a game four tonight in Dallas as the Stars now have a 2-1 series lead. What's going to be in the gut of this Flames team that had a very big year that everybody thought the Battle of Alberta between them and Edmonton in the next round, well, now we have to put that on pause because the Flames have a big matchup here tonight against a Dallas team that now has a lot of juice And with everything that's going on in that city, with the Mavericks coming back, and then now let's see if the Stars can take a 3-1 series lead. You know that building's going to be rocking for the Stars to take a commanding lead. So we'll find out what's in the gut of the Flames here tonight. And speaking of Edmonton, after a Game 3 blowout, 8-2 with an Evander Kane hat trick that got shut out there yesterday behind Jonathan Quick of LA, and now you wonder... Can Edmonton get out of the series? Granted, they have the home ice. The series shifts back to Edmonton. But we talked about it so many times with this Edmonton team, with all the talent, etc. I think they'll prevail in the series. I think they'll be able to win. But last night, is that an indication of what the Oilers could revert to? Especially with some pressure now, knowing that they have to win in their building. Granted, they could win in LA, and we saw that there in Game 3. But... Similar to Toronto, knowing that they have to go and take care of home ice in order to get back to L.A. and maybe close out that series, I don't know if I trust the Oilers altogether. To think I may actually even trust Toronto winning a Game 5, and that's saying a lot as opposed to Edmonton because of their young players. So we'll have to wait and see there. But other than one series... This first round by the NHL has been fascinating because you have two game fours, really three game fours, where Florida, Calgary, and even the Rangers, I understand it's a lesser scale because we got to give the Penguins their due. And I guess the Penguins are due to get out of the first round at some point because remember, ever since they won the Cup, when they beat Nashville that second go-around after beating San Jose the year before, they haven't been able to get out of the first round since. Or maybe they, no, I take that back. 2018, they got to a second round where they lost to the Capitals, and the Capitals won the Cup that year. But since then, they got swept by the Islanders in the first round in 19. They lost to the Islanders last year in the first round, and then in the bubble, Pittsburgh didn't get out of their series, and I believe they lost to Montreal, if I'm not mistaken, because Pittsburgh was the 5 seed and Montreal was the 12. So, they're more than overdue to get out of the first round. But other than the Nashville-Colorado series, you have a lot of two twos. You have teams that are looking to try to get the equalizer and teams that were heavily favored to win these series. So the NHL has been so far above and beyond anything of what the first round of what the NBA had to offer. So we'll continue to keep our eyes on that. To turn my attention to baseball, other than some injuries where... Marcus Stroman of the Cubs was placed on the IL. He was supposed to start in the game last night against the Dodgers on Sunday Night Baseball. But he was a late scratch. So you wonder what effect that's going to have on a Cub team that's going nowhere this year. Same for the Phillies with 
Zach Wheeler and even Zach Eflin having to go on the COVID IL, so who knows how long they're going to be out. You figure they're both going to miss a start. So you've had some injuries here. Even Michael Walker was supposed to start there for the Red Sox, another team that's fading fast here, especially in the American League. But besides that, baseball has been pretty quiet over the past week. And I took a lay of the land in baseball on Thursday's podcast, pretty much covering the almost first month. And now that we're fully a month into this baseball season, pretty much everything remains status quo. I know some of the surprises and disappointments that I discussed then have pretty much been status quo, whether you're a Philly team, that a lot of things were expected out of them this year, and they are currently 12-16. and 16. Red Sox are 10-19. and 19. Remember, this is a team that went to the ALCS last year, and we know about their starting pitching and especially their bullpen woes. Trevor Story has not gotten on track this year. I believe he hasn't even hit a home run, as of, I know, before the weekend. So those have been some disappointments right there coming out of the gate. But pretty much when we take a look, Yankees had a split a series, and both the Mets and Yankees, they had games there in the middle of the week. Yankees had a game on Wednesday in Toronto, and they got their first game since then, yesterday, where they split a doubleheader against Texas. The Mets did not play Friday or Saturday due to the atrocious weather in the Northeast with all this rain, and especially Thursday night, a comeback for the ages where the Mets were down a touchdown, heading into the sixth inning to where Starling Marte hit a home run, and then an uprising in the ninth, led by a two-run homer from Francisco Lindor in a seven, the most runs in a ninth inning by a Met team since 1997. And I remember that because that was a Carl Everett Grand Slam. And then they won an extra innings back in, I believe it was September 97 against the Expos. But the Mets were able to pull that victory out of nowhere and had to sit on it for a couple days to where Max Scherzer lost his first game of the year where he battled through six innings, gave up 10 hits, didn't walk a guy, but lost in the first game 3-2, to two, and then the Mets win the nightcap there, 6-1 behind two homers and five RBIs by Pete Alonso, six innings by Chris Bassett, and now the Mets go down to Washington to play three games before coming home this weekend. So with them, the Yankees, both teams having the best records in the sport, I know you can say the Dodgers too, as far as winning percentage at 19-7, and seven, and then the Yankees 19-8, and eight. the Mets are the first team to win 20 in baseball, as they're now 20-10, and 10, and they still haven't lost a series this year, which is mind-boggling when you think about it. Yes, they did split a series with the Braves last week in that four-game set, but they still have not lost a series. And what happens when you play a majority of your series, which are obviously going to be three-game series, and when you win two out of three, chances are you're going to have the record that the Mets have, 20-10, and 10, 667 winning percentage, and that's why the Mets have the record that they have because they have not lost a series yet. And then you look at the Twins who have played very well here. White Sox have turned their season around. Remember, they were 8-13 and at one point and looked like they were hurting with Eloy Jimenez and their pitching hadn't been on track and now they've won six in a row. So they've bounced back in a nice way as they try to nip at the heels of the Twins who have swept the sad sack Oakland A's over the weekend. And then the Angels, of course, have played well. And now the Astros have turned it on. They've won seven in a row. Remember, they started off slow, too. I believe they were, what, 10 days ago or so. They were about a game under 500. And now they're 18 and 11, just a half game behind the Angels. And then when we look at the schedule this week, let me see if we have any interesting matchups here. Because I can see it now. I'll talk about what's going on in baseball. And then you'll have the Angels play the Astros here over the course of the next few days. 
that is not the case. The Astros will be at Minnesota, which is interesting because that'll be the first time Carlos Correa will go up against his former team. So he got a very interesting matchup there. And the Angels will host Tampa Bay. So Tampa's, they've also played pretty well as they just came from Seattle. The Tampa Bay Rays, that is. So that should turn out to be a pretty interesting series, or at least a decent series between both the Rays and Angels. In the National League, the Mets have a six-game lead over the Braves, the largest margin by division leader throughout baseball. You figure the Braves will turn it on at some point, so we'll see what happens there. Brewers and Cardinals still battling it out there. Cardinals are just two games behind the loss. Pirates, Cubs, and Reds, you can forget about. Reds actually won a couple of games this week, so remember, they were 3-21, and so to think that they've actually split their last four games, that's an achievement as they're 5-23. and And then you have the Dodgers who have won six in a row, the Padres who are just a game and a half behind them, now, mind you, they're three in the loss, but they have the same amount of wins there at 19, but do have three games in hand. The Dodgers, that is, over the Padres. And then you have the Rockies and Giants, 16 and 12 behind them, four games back. So, pretty much baseball, not too bad. You have some teams that are still playing pretty well. We all know about the bottom feeders in baseball that you're not going to hear from now, from pretty much here to the end of the season. That would be the Reds, as we mentioned. The A's who have now lost nine in a row. And they're drawing flies at the Oakland Coliseum. Nationals, Cubs. Diamondbacks are game over 500 when you think about it. But still, you figure the Diamondbacks will go out the pasture at some point. But baseball, obviously we have plenty of time to get into baseball. When storylines start to come up, you know we will definitely, or I will definitely highlight them. But first month in of the baseball season and pretty much it's been competitive and teams are starting to separate themselves a little bit, but there are some teams hanging around and you know that I'll continue to keep my fingers on the pulse when it comes to baseball. All right, and to close out, I'm going to go rapid fire on four different sports and give you various angles of what took place in particular over the weekend. And I thought it was very fascinating, so I'm going to go right to it and I'm going to start with the Derby. If by some remote chance you had a thousand bucks laying around or you figured out, ah, what the hell, you know, just for kicks, I'm going to see what's on the board. Yeah, it's easy to go with horses like Epicenter and even Zandon, who are the favorites of this race. You want to go to some other horse that you kind of like, maybe even the horse that came from Japan that you probably were fascinated by and you figure, hey, let me plunk some money down on this horse. But then you see this horse that's 80 to 1. And a horse that replaced Ethereal Road that had to be scratched. And you look at the name, it says Rich Strike. And maybe the stars are aligning to where you're thinking, 8 of the 1. Rich Strike. 1000 bucks. Even if you put 100 bucks, I should say. But for arguments purposes, 1000 bucks. So you say, what the hell? I'm going to throw 1000 bucks, 8 of the 1, Rich Strike. Maybe I'll strike it rich if he somehow, some way wins the Kentucky Derby. Well, the... Greatest two minutes in all sports, as it said, when it comes to watching the Kentucky Derby. If you would have put that wager down, and to think, coming up the back end, with Epicenter, and with Zendon, here's this horse number 21, coming up and pulling away from the pack, crossing the finish line, and winning the 148th run of the Roses is Rich Strike. 
you'd be sitting on 80K right about now. And one of the bigger upsets and one of the stories that had come out of nowhere where a horse who I'm not going to say had no business running in this race. Granted, he was an alternate just in case if a horse was scratched. And Ethereal Road, you could look at this as being the story. Now, it has to have a little bit more legs, no pun intended, and I'll get to that in a second. But as of right this moment, what Rich Strike did was the improbable. Pretty much the impossible when it comes to horse racing. A horse that came out of nowhere with those odds, and I believe it was the first time in over 100 years where a horse was that much of an underdog and won a Kentucky Derby. I think you have to go back to 1913. And now you have to wonder whether or not this horse, going back to the legs comment, is going to have what it takes to win a Preakness. Because what do you do for an encore when you're a horse that wasn't supposed to race in a Kentucky Derby? And now all the pressure between the jockey, the owner of the horse, and of course the horse itself that's going to have to one-up himself from what he did here just Saturday night. So we know that he's going to run the Preakness. That goes without saying. And you wonder, the epicenters, the Zendons of the world, or Zandon, excuse me, and a lot of the other favorites that were in the Kentucky Derby, will they pull him or pull those horses maybe to see if Rich Strike could strike once again? which would set up just an unbelievable story for the Belmont. And that's what horse racing needs because anytime you get a horse that wins the Kentucky Derby, you're ready to see if they're going to be able to win the Preakness, whether that horse is heavily favored or not. And if this horse does win, then you know that the groundswell and the attention and the Belmont, they're going to have 120,000 people in that racetrack come that first weekend of June. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the question is going to be whether or not was this a one-hit wonder with Rich Strike? Will other horses withdraw to maybe set it up for Rich Strike knowing that he was just a horse that came out of nowhere and maybe they're going to give him that shot and then say, all right, now we're going to put all our horses there for the Belmont Stakes and we'll really see what this horse is all about. As we all know, the Belmont, I believe, is a mile and three-quarter. It's the longest track out of the three. Fascinating stuff, though. Now, would you be surprised if the horse flops here in the Preakness? I have to say, I would not. Because this underdog of a horse was an underdog for a reason. And granted, he ran a stupendous race. But it's almost that, okay, we saw it once, we need to see it again. So, next week, especially next Thursday, on that podcast, we'll see what the field is going to be like. And how that may shape up to see if it's going to be favorable for Rich Strike to win a Preakness. But for right now, it's a story that probably one of the biggest in sports. And I get it's a horse racing. It's so outside of the radar of everything that's happening in sports. But it is a feel-good story nevertheless. So that's item number one. Item number two is what happened to Canelo Alvarez on Saturday night. That was a shocker to say the least. And I was going to watch the fight. There was a part of me that said, you know what? Maybe I should just watch this. I know boxing, I've been so 
in a different stratosphere when it comes to that sport because it's a shell of its old self. And I know people could argue, oh, there's some good fighters that are out there. Jay Reels, come on, embrace it once again. To me, when I watch boxing in the 80s, 90s, and even into the 2000s, the competition was just so much better that now I couldn't even name or even tell you who the heavyweight champion of the world is. Yeah, Tyson Fury, I believe he is, and he won his fight last week. But for Canelo Alvarez to be not just beaten, but for everything that I read and some of the highlights, decisively beaten by a guy I never even heard of in Dimitri Bivol. He retains his WBA super lightweight title. The fight wasn't even close based on some of the cards that I read. And even though it was 115-113 on all three judges, but one of the ESPN writers, he had it at 118-110. So it made me think, what fight did the judges watch? I don't know. But it looked like Canelo was just not in sync. Maybe he underestimated Bivol. I don't know what it was. Obviously, I would need to watch the fight again. But because it wasn't a big fight, and usually big fights do take place that first Saturday in May, just like they do later on in that first or second Saturday in November. But for Alvarez to be, I don't want to call him a no-show, but that was a shock. And mind you, his only loss in his career was to Floyd Mayweather. So I'm sure the boxing fan had to be surprised beyond belief to know that Alvarez didn't even make it out of this fight where you felt as if it could have been a split decision or obviously by far was an even remotely competitive in this fight. I'm sure he competed. I don't want to knock him on that regard because, again, I didn't watch the fight. But when you read that he was dominated and didn't even have a shot, that's all you need to know. So that's item number two. The third thing, and kind of staying in that realm in the UFC, I don't understand why they have their UFC fights go up against boxing. And I get it. It's two different sports. I know the younger fan is going to gravitate to the UFC more so than the boxing, so I guess it could stand alone in that regard. And I bet you, if you look at the pay-per-view, more, I bet, probably paid for the UFC fight than the Canelo fight. But that's another story. But for Charles Oliveira to beat Justin Gaethy in round one by submission, just three minutes and 22 seconds in, and even though each fighter had a knockdown and Oliveira landed more strikes defeating Gaethy, but because he was stripped of his belt as a lightweight because he didn't make weight the day before as he was a half pound under qualifying or below qualifying, that the vacancy for lightweight title is now just that. It's just sitting there with not a name attached to who the lightweight champion of UFC is. And that's how it is. That's how the rules are. I, it, it's shocking to think that a guy could still win the fight or even they'll still have the fight. Because I understand they can't throw in a last minute replacement. Maybe they could. But they figure, hey, let the show go on. And if there's going to be a vacancy, then Olivera's going to have to fight again in order for him to get that spot. And the thing is that because Gaethy lost, obviously he's not going to be the default champion. So a little bit of a weird wrinkle when it comes to a fighter winning, but not winning the belt because he didn't make weight. And maybe I say it's weird because I'm not fully invested in UFC. I know I had a guest last year, my guy, Frank Torado, who knows everything about MMA. For the lightweight title, we'll still have to wait and see who that's going to be somewhere down the road. And then lastly, the next great tennis player, I believe, if he hasn't arrived yet, 
he's on the come up. And that's a one, Carlos Alcaraz out of Spain, 18 years old. He won his fourth match this year or his fourth title here in the first four and a half months of 2022. And in this last match was the Madrid Open. And here's who he beat in succession in order for him to win. He beat his hero, Rafael Nadal. He beat Novak Djokovic. And then Alexander Zverev in straight sets to claim his first Madrid Open. Now, I understand people are going to say, well, Jay Reels, he hasn't won a major yet. Okay, that's fine. But he's 18 years old. His star is building. And as we've seen, Roger Federer slowly but surely on his way out. Rafael Nadal, I'm sure he still has a little bit left. How much is still unknown. And Novak Djokovic, who we still think has a few years left to go and a lot more majors to win. And yes, we can't discount the Daniel Medvedevs, the Alexander Zverevs, as well as the Stefano Tsitsipas, among others. But when we're talking about the young stud, the guy who could be the next face of tennis and carry that torch for the aforementioned giants of the sport. And I understand that it's not an American player. It's not a guy that this country could rally around and embrace to say, hey, this is our guy. I understand. And tennis is a niche sport. It's not a sport that, yes, there's quite a few people that may play. But as we know, there isn't that Andre Agassi, that Pete Sampras, that guy that's going to take tennis by storm. And for the American player, even Andy Roddick is another guy who was supposed to be that guy and never really was. But for Carlos Alcaraz and what he's done so far this year, granted no majors, but in this last tennis tournament, the Madrid Open, him beating those three players in succession, very impressive and a guy we definitely have to watch out for here in the future. All right, so now to send us off into Thursday and where we'll reconvene then my hero in Zero of the Week. My hero of the week goes out to Mike Lanzalotta as well as Derek Rodriguez. And if you also want to throw in Aaron Judge, let's all lump them in together. I'm sure you've seen the video by now. Tuesday night in Toronto, Aaron Judge hits a home run into the seats to where the Blue Jay fan, Mike Lanzalotta, turns around, he catches the home run ball, then turns around and hands it to Derek Rodriguez, the young Yankee fan, the Aaron Judge fan, to where you saw the young boy cry and get into a big hug with the gentleman, Lanzalotta. The video went viral, and in the next day, it was set up to where Rodriguez got to meet his hero, Aaron Judge, as well as Lanzalotta, as we saw that moment in the dugout of the three embracing one another, and just a beautiful scene. Judge signs the ball. You couldn't make out what they were saying, but it was just interesting to see Rodriguez, the young boy, nine years old, just to be coy and shy, but also show his emotions and point his fingers to Judge as he crouched down eye level with the boy and pointing at him saying that you're my favorite player and wearing the Judge shirt. Just a beautiful scene. Really what sports should be about, especially when it comes to the relationship between fan and ball player. I wish we could see more of that. But Lanzalotta, with his gesture, being the catalyst for everything that transpired after that. And of course, you're also going to see the young boy, and I believe Lancelotta at Yankee Stadium as the Yankee organization in a beautiful gesture will have them come down to the stadium at some point in the summer to witness a ball game. 
to sit out in right field in the judge chamber seats. Just a beautiful story all, all around. So, Mike Lanzalotta, you are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes out to that Maverick fan. I don't know, they don't have him by name and we probably shouldn't even mention his name. But as I discussed earlier in the podcast with Chris Paul, maybe being a little preoccupied or not having his mind fully on game four yesterday as a Maverick fan was not only harassing Chris Paul's family, which was pretty much a few rows behind the Suns bench, but had to be escorted out of the arena because of reports of he getting his hands on Chris Paul's wife. There was a report that there was some shoving or pushing in the back to where Chris Paul's kids were also there and witnessed that. Just a terrible display. What are the fans doing? They shouldn't even be heckling the families of these players. You want to heckle the player? I understand that's fine. And I get this goes back to even Draymond Green and his comments in the post game with the fan. And the fan has no right touching or even spewing any hate toward the families of these players. It's inexplicable. It's just downright despicable. And for him to get escorted, it was an excellent job. And hopefully you won't see any of that, not only in Dallas, but throughout the sport, in any sport, but more so the NBA, because we've seen that. The proximity between the fan and the player, there's not a barrier there. Just a terrible display. And for the Maverick fan to get shooed out of there and should know better, whomever and whatever his name is, you are my zero of the week. Boy, that was an action-packed hour plus, just a smidge over an hour. I appreciate all you guys and gals. Thank you so much for listening to your boy babble about everything that's happening in the sports world. Trust me, I truly appreciate you taking the time out of your day, and I'm sure you could get your source of sports from a lot of different avenues, but knowing that you drive down my street to get my takes, opinions, etc., I greatly appreciate it. And if you could do so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, you know the platforms. Go ahead, let people know in your family, your friends, get the word out, take a screenshot, send it to me on social media. I would greatly appreciate it. We want to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there. And if you want to hit me up on social media, you could do so at the following on TikTok, the J Reels Podcast. And I want to thank those on TikTok who have followed me over the past week based on the JJ Reddit Chris Russo debate on first take last week. Very interesting exchanges that I had on there. So I've been happily and surprisingly, I don't want to say overjoyed, that may be a little bit of a stretch, but I've been entertained by TikTok and what's taking place there. So you want to join me on that platform, you could do so as well as Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast. On Twitter, J Reels one just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, or the old-fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please, Take a screenshot, send it to me on social media. You have a question, comment, criticism, praise, suggestion, whatever it is, be sure to hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth, it's going 100% to this production, to the upkeep of the website, the equipment, anything and everything that has to do with this podcast because... This is what I love to do, people. I love to talk sports. It's been in my blood since birth. It's in the DNA, all that good stuff. It's not only an honor, but a privilege to share my thoughts, my opinions, analysis, critiques, praise on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, 
The J Rose Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the Southeast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>